Hi, and welcome to Maybe Today Matinee, a podcast about all things film before you were born. I'm Monica. I'm David. This month, we're watching censored films. And today, we're talking about Oscar Micheaux's 1920 film, Within Our Gates. Sylvia Landry is an educated young black woman visiting her cousin Alma in Boston. She is engaged to Conrad, an academic working in Brazil, who sends word that he will be coming to visit. Jealous, Alma intercepts his telegram, and when he does arrive, she manages to make him see Sylvia in a compromising position with another man, causing Conrad to call off the engagement. Meanwhile, Larry, Alma's stepbrother, makes advances on Sylvia, but she rejects him. Caught up in a lifestyle of gambling and thievery, he murders a fellow poker player. Sylvia goes south and visits a school for black children, which she is told is running out of money. She promises to find funding when she goes north again. Back in Boston, Sylvia has her purse stolen, and a black man named Dr. Vivian returns it to her after he tracks the thief down. Soon after, hapless Sylvia is struck by a car when she tries to push a small child out of harm's way. The passenger is an older wealthy white woman, Mrs. Warwick, who accompanies Sylvia to the hospital. Sylvia asks if Mrs. Warwick can donate money to save the school in the South, though Mrs. Warwick's southern white friend Geraldine tries to dissuade her, saying that education is of no benefit to blacks, Mrs. Warwick donates tenfold the amount of money that Sylvia had requested. Sylvia returns to the South, where she declines a proposal by the pastor Reverend Jacobs, and where Larry tries to blackmail her for money that is supposed to be going to the school. Sylvia escapes to the north once again. We later see Alma in conversation with Dr. Vivian, to whom she confesses that she had endeavored to ruin Sylvia's engagement. She then explains Sylvia's family history. In flashback, we see that Sylvia was adopted by the Landrys, a family of sharecroppers in the south. Unlike her adoptive parents, Sylvia receives an education and encourages her parents to stand up to their exploitative white boss, Mr. Griddlestone, now that she has been able to explain their financials to them. Mr. Landry goes to Mr. Griddlestone to plead his case, but at the same time, a white man who had also been exploited fires his rifle through the window and kills Griddlestone. Griddlestone's gossipy servant, Ephraim, runs through the town proclaiming that Mr. Landry killed Mr. Griddlestone and the townspeople lynch Mr. and Mrs. Landry, as well as Ephraim, though he had hoped to ingratiate himself to the white townspeople. The Landry's young son escapes, and the true killer of Griddlestone is shot by mistake. Sylvia, aware that her family has fled, but unaware that her parents have been lynched, tries to escape, but is stopped by Griddlestone's brother. He attempts to rape her, but sees a scar on her chest that tells him she is his biological daughter. We learn it is he who had funded her education, and Sylvia escapes. Back in the present, we see Dr. Vivian discussing Sylvia's past with her. He tells her she should be proud to be an American, and cites the participation of Black Americans in the Spanish-American War, Mexican Border War, and World War I. The two then marry. All right, David, what were your thoughts on Within Our Gates? Your kind of first impressions or overall feeling? Well, it's, this is certainly one of those films that you don't really want to say that you enjoyed because that's not that's not the aim. That's not really the purpose. And I certainly didn't enjoy this. I think it's, it's very difficult viewing, but it's uh, masterful. I really loved it as 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 a, a piece, as a work of art. Was this your first time seeing it? This was, and this is actually. Um, uh, unless I'm mistaken, this is my first time seeing a, a quote-unquote race film. Oh, okay. All right. Um, well, before we kind of dive into this, I wanted to upfront acknowledge that on this podcast, I think we make an effort to showcase films that are not just American mainstream Hollywood white. So we have a lot of indie films, a lot of international films we've done Um, you know, films from South Korea and India and all these places. And today we're talking about a film from a seminal Black American filmmaker. And in being inclusive, 
we're bound to talk about cultures that are not our own. And I think we really try our best to get accurate information, but we are bound to make mistakes. So I just want to kind of put it out to the listeners. We always have our contact information at the end of the podcast. If you ever want to give us feedback and correct us, we also have our sources listed at the end of the podcast. If you want to go look into more detail about anything that we talk about. And just to be be especially explicit in this case, uh, neither one of us is is black. So our conversation about this film is is certainly going to be limited in our perspective and given given our privilege. Right. And that would be the case for this film or in the past, whenever we've talked about, um, you know, Japanese film or South Korean film or whatever it is, that's always the case. Right. So this movie, we're pretty lucky, I think, to have it because, uh, as we've talked about in regards to silent films, it was pretty much thought to be lost until it was discovered in 1993 in Spain. And when they found the movie, it had Spanish intertitles and they've never been able to locate the original English intertitles. So what they had to do was take the Spanish intertitles and back translate them from the Spanish into English. And they did this by they had uh, a Spanish translator help them. But then they also looked at Oscar Micheaux's other movies uh, with the English intertitles that we do have to kind of see what his style of writing was so that it would be reflected in the back translation. And then they also had to go through all the intertitles and remove kind of the cultural explanatory notes that were put in there for the audience in Spain. Even with all this, we are missing some scenes entirely. And if you uh, watch this film online, you'll see, I think, um, pretty much everywhere you watch it, there'll be like a little note that tells you that a scene's missing in a certain place. And it kind of summarizes what happens in that part. But I was wondering, David, whether you felt there was anything essential uh, missing from this film that might be a result of this provenance. And um, also, what was the musical score that you happened to hear when you watched it? Uh, So it's it's always difficult to say exactly if something is missing simply because you don't you it's very difficult to tell what is a creative choice and what is uh, an omission uh, you know lost frames whatever it may be i think there were a lot of the sequences that were dreams or um pardon not dreams but flashbacks and memories were not super clearly signaled so that made it i think made it difficult particularly in the earlier portions of the film to have a specific awareness of like what exactly is going on in the plot i kind of wonder if if some of the inner titles some of the missing inner titles would have been to signal that but i'm not sure uh there are other moments where it appears that there are pieces of dialogue that pretty clearly would have needed to have been communicated to the audience and we don't have an inner title for those and it, not to sidetrack us too much, but I think it it does result in a very interesting viewing experience. For those of you who remember our horror theme month when we discussed Nosferatu and Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, during that time we talked a lot about kind of the different ways in which media can be consumed and particularly media that is this old and missing. It's very hard to determine what an authentic experience is. And so I think as a result, the what may or may not be missing makes this film kind of all the more fascinating, or at least that was that was the impact it had on me. Uh, and as far as the, the musical score, I actually watched it without one because it's it's available on YouTube. The um, the Library of Congress made it available on YouTube, uh, but they did they didn't put any kind of score to accompany. It. Uh, I'm. I'm actually wondering. I was kind of surprised. What music did you hear with it? Um. So I listened to or listened watch watch the movie on Canopy, where they had it accompanied by a score done by DJ Spooky from Kino Lorber. He did, I guess, kind of a contemporary soundtrack. Um. Which 
So the reason I I watched it on Canopy was that was the version of the film that I found that had the best quality visually. And at first I was kind of a little bit hesitant because I didn't really know whether having kind of a modern soundtrack would detract from the film, but I actually really enjoyed it. And just like you were saying, there's a lot of different ways to watch the same movie. Who knows whether we can really say which which one is right or wrong, but I, I still liked it a lot. Let's talk about Oscar Michaud then. So this movie, Within Our Gates, is the earliest known surviving feature film by a Black American. And this was Michaud's second film and his best-known work out of more than 40 movies that he made. Um, the first movie that he made is Lost to Us, unfortunately. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit of some kind of commonalities that you'll see throughout his work. One thing about him is that, um, and that you can see in this movie, is that he kind of had a, a suspicion about religion. Something that I heard on the Michaud Mission podcast was that his first wife, I guess, was the daughter of a pastor, and he had a really bad relationship with his father-in-law, so that may have impacted his feelings about religion. But as you see in this movie, what I think we have a couple of characters who are pastors, actually, but the pastor, Old Ned, is portrayed as kind of trying to keep the congregation, the black congregation in its place, right? Quote unquote, by by saying that the white people are going to go to hell in the afterlife. So basically don't just kind of just kind of hang tight in this life. Um, so Michaud seemed to feel that religion was kind of um, limiting people. He's also been, and there's been debate about this, he's kind of been People have said that his films uh, are colorist because if you watch them, they very often portray educated, wealthier black people as having lighter colored skin and poor, uneducated black people as having darker colored skin. And that was definitely the case in this movie. Um, so some people think that just that's just colorism, but then other people have said, well, he's just kind of portraying reality and the fact that the lighter your skin is, the more advantages you are likely to have in life. Um, and then not so much in this film, but in some of his other movies, um, mixed race people have kind of been portrayed as being conflicted or maybe not in the most positive light either. So that's kind of up for debate. Another thing is that in the intertitles, in this movie, but also in his others, he kind of reflects, the dialogue is kind of written in a way that reflects the way the people are speaking. So the educated people, whether they're white or black, speak, quote unquote, like correct English. And, you know, the uneducated laborers speak in like a non-standard dialect. And he portrays it in writing. And in the podcast I mentioned earlier, Michaud Mission, the Two hosts were kind of at odds about this. One of them thought that this was a fair way to kind of portray to the way people speak, if it's actually the way they speak. And the other one kind of thought that it seemed condescending. And this is a debate that you see not only about these movies, but in literature, right? When you portray the way people speak, what is the correct approach to take? In general, Michaud's movies... He made them to appeal to the middle and lower classes. And also, especially in these early movies, he didn't have a huge budget. Um, unsurprisingly, he had to borrow a lot of the costumes and props. And he only had he only had one chance to shoot each scene. So I kind of wondered, David, how do you think he handled those limitations in his filmmaking? I... I don't know that I have a lot to bring to that question, really, because I think setting off, I was aware that this was going to have a smaller budget than its contemporary films and that, you know, there would be a lot of limitations here. Uh, and I, you know, honestly, I really couldn't. And it might just be that my eye is not sufficiently refined for silent films to be able to detect things like that. But I, I really couldn't tell if I hadn't known that coming into this, I wouldn't have known that this was a financially limited picture. 
Uh, I think the the set designs are really phenomenal. I think there's a lot of really interesting use of of framing, which is made all the more interesting knowing that a lot of these shots, see, as you said, might have only had the one take on them. This is perhaps not not super closely related, but. In the early 90s, the director Robert Rodriguez became really famous for the film he did called El Mariachi, which he originally, so while he was a college student, he went down uh, to Mexico to shoot a feature-length film, and his idea was to shoot something very quickly and turn it around for kind of the the Mexican uh, direct-to-VHS market. And then it kind of, you know, it kind of caught fire. It became very, very popular. But he wrote a book about that experience called Rebel Without a Crew. And he also, in the the special features of the, the DVD of that film, he does a lot of discussing, like, the kind of cost-cutting measures he used. I think that if someone is is kind of interested in the idea of how you would cut costs that would be a really good example again these films are are separated by some some 70 odd years but i think there are a lot of really clever ways to to kind of like subtly subtly cut corners in film without really showing your hand i think watching this movie i can't really tell i think it i think it looks great something i saw was that you notice maybe that he he didn't have that many camera angles, right? But I don't know whether that's so much the case just for him or whether that was really common in silent films as a whole um, because because the medium was so new. Yeah, I mean, the, the medium was very nascent at this period. Um, and I think in that way, like like you said, a lot of, a lot of the setups are very... Uh, theatrical in nature almost as though we're we're kind of watching a stage it's very very traditional you're not going to find any canted frames or anything here but i think that that also in in some ways kind of contributes to the general message and like the politics of the film is this kind of kind of journeyman like very straight direct approach to filmmaking what's a candid frame it's a canted C-A-N-T-E-D? Yes. So that's one, basically, the um, the camera is, like, at a crooked angle. It's basically, like, if you're looking at your monitor and you just turn it so it looks like a diamond as opposed to a square. Mm, okay. That would be a canted frame. Okay, yeah. Something I did notice in this film was that, you know, even though he had a low budget, maybe maybe he spent it on location filming because I felt like there were so many sets, indoors and outdoors and all over the place, right? There was a lot going on in the story. Yeah, it did move around a ton. I did, I noticed that as well. Like there were a lot of shots on um, on like street corners and involving involving cars as well, which is not, I think especially if you're on really on a budget, that's not exactly a, a, a cheap prop to incorporate. Right, 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 right. And I would imagine it's not necessarily easy to get your timing right and all that kind of thing. And I don't know if they had like an area kind of roped off where they could film. It seems like kind of a logistical pain. So um, there's an industry term called uh, stealing a shot, which is basically when you go on a location that you don't have permission to film on and you kind of film the shot before anybody has the opportunity to call security or the police show up and say that you don't, you know, you don't have the permits to film here or whatever. It's funny because that's, that's a very easy thing. I don't want to say very easy, but like, with the advent of digital technology, especially if you're not shooting on film, that's not that that big of a deal. I have no idea how they would have done it when they had to like hand crank things. Um, mm-hmm. I guess it is kind of a question. I have no idea what what like security or police presence would have looked like or or kind of how they would have handled a film crew being somewhere that they weren't technically supposed to be. Um, but that would certainly that would certainly be a challenge, I think. Right. Something I mentioned was that this film had a lot going on. I think a lot of little plot lines um, and 
something that he was consciously trying to do, it seems, is represent several different archetypes. So I'm going to go over a few of them, right? You have the heroine, who is Sylvia Landry. You have the Uncle Tom, which would be Old Ned, the preacher, or Ephraim, who's the gossipy um, servant to Mr. Griddlestone. You have the quote-unquote bad white people, like Geraldine, the Southern lady, and then Mr. Griddlestone. You have the quote-unquote good white people, Mrs. Warwick, who donates all that money. Um, You have the 'er ne'er-do-well, which is Larry, who's the one who's kind of involved in gambling and uh, thievery. And you have just the poor white man, who's the one who actually killed Mr. Griddlestone. So, and, and then, and the list goes on. And I kind of wondered how you felt about these kind of clear-cut characterizations. Because on the one hand, it they do communicate very easy-to-understand messages about the kinds of roles that people play in society and in race relations. But on the other hand, my head was kind of spinning, trying to keep track of all these different people Um I think especially the Larry subplot, because I kind of didn't really know what was going on with that guy. <laughs> I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but like kind of having this number of, of characters, it, it becomes very confusing, especially in, I would say, the first uh, maybe 30 minutes of the film. It's really difficult to keep track of everyone and their uh, kind of how they're all related. Um I think this is kind of a hallmark of silent filmmaking, though. Maybe not the number of archetypes, but I kind of my my mind keeps going to Metropolis, uh, the incredibly famous Fritz Lang film, and that movie is is very heavily political, kind of social commentary about the interrelation of of labor and kind of the ruling class. And essentially ends with a with a very extended kind of like a statement, essentially from the filmmakers about like what they think about these issues, and it's just told through one of the characters in inner titles. And so again, kind of going back to the idea that film was such a nascent form at this time, and that accompanied by the fact that there was no there was no spoken dialogue. I think you kind of you kind of had to craft things in this way that were very specifically like each of these archetypes there are very specific parameters to them and they're going to operate in very specific kind of uh, I don't want to say predictable but very consistent ways uh because again like in silent film you can't have performances that are too subtle because then no mm. one knows what's going on right i guess i don't know that it's my favorite element of silent films but i think kind of given the limitations of the medium this is a very interesting use of these archetypes Before the break, we were talking about character archetypes in this movie, and I wanted to expand on that discussion um, and talk more broadly about the social messaging of this film. Um, There's a lot of layers here. Michaud addressed issues such as feminism so you have this educated female protagonist right who worked hard to help her adoptive parents to assert her rights who endeavored to get the money to save the school in the south and then also he has kind of some feminist commentary when we see Geraldine who is the Southern friend of Mrs. Warwick, who tells Mrs. Warwick, you shouldn't donate this money because black people don't need education. So obviously Geraldine is racist, but she's also uh, sexist because um, she's against the vote for women. Um, I believe in the film she says that uh, she, she can't stand the idea of black women voting. And if women vote, I guess, I don't know. 
Uh, she is the proto Karen. I, I had the exact same thought. The, I thought the exact <laughs> same thing. I was like, it's the original Karen because even, <laughs> even, even in the film, like her her age and her kind of mannerisms, I'm like, oh, she is a Karen. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, as I mentioned earlier, Michelle had a lot of issues with uh, religion. So when we were talking about archetypes, I mentioned the Uncle Tom archetype. And I just wanted to explain that a little bit more for listeners who may be unaware. So Uncle Tom was the title character of uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which was Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel that came out in the mid-19th century. And the original Uncle Tom in the novel was a pretty like positive uh, portrayal of a black man that kind of broke stereotypes. Harriet Beecher Stowe was a black author. Hi, folks. Correction here. Um, I just said that Harriet Beecher Stowe was a black author. Of course, she was a white author. Sorry. Okay. But the term Uncle Tom came to have a negative connotation because, ironically, there were a lot of minstrel shows that were made to portray the Uncle Tom character, and they portrayed him rather than uh, the the kind of uh, religious martyr that he was in the original novel. They portrayed him as being subservient to white people, right? Somebody who aimed to please white people. So in Within Our Gates, um, we have a couple of Uncle Tom characters. Ephraim, of course, he's the gossipy servant of Mr. Griddlestone. Um, but then we have old Ned and I think old Ned is kind of an interesting character because he, he's the, the minister who leads the congregation like that I mentioned earlier, but you also, there's also a scene where you see him, uh, he's just interacted with a couple of white men and he, he, he kind of, you know, is saying things to them that are very kind of. Um, subservient and you know aiming to please white people and then you see him alone in the next room and he's he's very self-aware and he says something to the effect of you know kind of like what am i doing why am i like this you know actually i did want to talk a little bit about that sequence with ned uh which i thought was really um i appreciated the movie up to that point but i thought that was really the beginning of kind of the the hallmark of its genius. Uh, so we have, we show Ned and he's preaching in front of, uh, I believe an all black congregation and he's espouting the, essentially the, the virtue of ignorance, right? He is saying that, well, the white man who has his knowledge, but his vices, he will, you know, surely be, be taken to hell, uh, upon his death. But we, if we kind of, stay in our station and keep keep doing good work we will reap the the glories of heaven when we die and so the shots in that sequence are very interesting because we're given a lot of um uh, wider shots of him again in front of the congregation speaking and seeing them kind of kind of clapping and like nodding in agreement and then we go in on him a little bit and the frame gives him plenty of room so that he can widely gesticulate so we get the impression of someone who is kind of wholly in control of his audience right a true a uh, true public speaker and then he gets to the sequence where he starts talking about how everyone should be donating and we cut closer on him as he kind of faces downward a little bit but looks up and and has a, a, a kind of a nefarious nefarious look on his face right so he you know starts with these broad movements and then brings his congregation in close to him when he starts talking about their their fiscal responsibility uh, to ostensibly to the religion, but like m- perhaps more accurately to him. Uh, and then the following sequence, he goes and speaks with his his white friends, as it were, and we see him enter the room. And the frame has him still centered in the same way that he was centered in front of the congregation. He's still center frame. But this time, it's a smaller room, and there are two white men sitting on either side of him, kind of more in the foreground. And we see he gives this this, uh, sort of performance for them 
as well uh, with kind of that that same message, but in a much more like humble tone, he's kind of leaning down a lot more. And then one of them, after he says all this about, again, like black people knowing their place will go to heaven, one of the white men stands up and kicks him, I guess kind of jovially or like they, you know, they're making a joke out of it or whatever. And when the, when the man kicks him, he steps up and blocks the frame so that we can no longer clearly see Ned. And so we have that kind of juxtaposition of the two sequences, one in which he is all powerful and then immediately following he is humiliated and debased and he is debased by the characters, but he is also debased in the eyes of the framing. He is again, literally removed from view when the white man stands up and I, th- I thought I was completely blown away by the sequence. I thought it was so great. Yeah. And, um, you know, some other interesting things I thought of were in when he's during the service. Um, of course, like there's a lot of, you know, parishioners who are enthusiastically participating, but there's also a few who are kind of napping. You know, <laughs> that's right. And and also um, Geraldine, our proto Karen, had advised um, Mrs. Warwick to, you know, instead of giving five thousand dollars to the school for the children, give like I forget what the number was, like five dollars to um, old Ned's church. Right. Your money should be directed to keeping black people in their place, basically. Right. Right. Right, and she says that specifically because it would do them more good, right? The idea being that you you would do more good for Black people keeping them in their place and you would educating them. So a really key sequence in the later part of this movie, when we're seeing Sylvia's backstory, um, when we see her adoptive parents being lynched, that really horrific sequence is kind of intercut with her being almost raped by her her biological father it turns out to be but but by a white man right and that was kind of a very clear message to the viewer that whereas lynching was portrayed by whites as something that happened in response to black men raping white women, what Michaud was showing here that far more often the thing that actually happened was white men were raping black women and the lynching was happening for no reason at all other than white supremacy, right? That was probably, I guess, like the key, maybe the most key sequence in the film. Another very complicated but very interesting message in this movie is at the end when Sylvia is having a discussion with Dr. Vivian, whom she eventually marries. He in encourages her to be proud of her identity as an American. And it's a really kind of, I think, to maybe to our ears now, a kind of jarringly patriotic message. But it was kind of revolutionary for the time because Dr. Vivian's uh, messaging was black soldiers uh, went to war for this country and the Spanish-American war and the Me- in the Spanish-American War and the Mexican Border War in World War One, those are the explicit events he re- he references. And you know, we we are part of this country as much as anybody else, and we should be proud of it. And identifying as American was revolutionary in itself because white America didn't really see black people as Americans, right? They're just blacks, and that's all. I think obviously we we don't really have the time to get into this because this is super super complex. But of course, I, I think. Nobody would really argue with um, the American participation in World War One, but the Spanish-American War and the Mexican Border War were, you know, unjust wars, imperialist wars. But it just goes to show you how in, I guess, an imperialist country, people of color get lodged against each other. And intersectionality is like a thing. And I uh, I can't say it, it, it messes with your head. But yeah. It's an onion. Yeah, I was going to say, I think uh, 
I really appreciated the film. And then we get to those, those final frames where he's like, Oh, you know, like we need to be proud of the great things Teddy Roosevelt did like the rough riders. And like, I'm, what? Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> I think this is a uh, this is upsetting and I think particularly as a Latino watching the film and two Latinos this is kind of a gut punch. Perhaps this is this is more than partially on me because obviously it's not it's not a fair presumption to make especially given the time this film came out and its age and everything that there would be a notion like you said of intersectionality at that time but it is it's kind of distressing and like you said the idea that that american imperialism pits people of color against each other uh is really is really profound and the idea of of different groups throughout history throughout american history different groups have kind of fought in one way or in another to be seen as like also, you know, fellow Americans. And so frequently it takes this kind of form, right? Like we are also Americans because we are proud of like this particular instance of oppression against a different group. To bring this into kind of a, a very contemporary context, uh, the Spike Lee film The Five Bloods uh, was recently released on Netflix. I have not had a chance to see it yet uh i'm a really big spike lee fan uh so i can't i really can't wait to watch it the the film covers five black uh veterans of the vietnam war and i believe the idea is that they return to vietnam to try and track down like treasure that they had had buried or something like that but some of the discourse i've seen about it talks about uh, some of its limitations being that it it has a lot to say about black people's role in that war and in America, especially at that time, which also whenever a period piece comes out, it's about that period, but it's just a, just as much about the period in which it, it was released, right? And this has been kind of a long-running discussion about how frequently Black people and people of color have, have served in the in the military only to not have, you know, not have the same rights to continue to return home to a segregated com country, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the particular problem that certain outlets, including um, the AV club listed with the five bloods is that it has a lot to say about that experience, but it doesn't really speak to the fact that black soldiers during the Vietnam war were part of an imperialist force against Vietnam, against other people of color. Again, I haven't seen that film, so I'm not, I'm not trying to put that on, on blast or attack anything, but I think it just kind of speaks to this idea that it, it's the society as such, in some ways, is constantly pushing us to knock each other over in, in this kind of goal of, of attaining our own rights. Something I just wanted to put out there, too, is that Michaud, as far as I can tell, he was kind of a, a Midwesterner. He was from Illinois, and he spent, as far as I can tell, most of his time in the American Midwest and in the South. So often, uh, I kind of think about in a time before easy travel and mass communication, like he probably wouldn't have ever encountered Latinos or Latin Americans. And I just think about, too, how kind of information would have been siloed and how, how that would limit the amount of, quote-unquote, intersectionality that there could be, right? Um, I don't mean this as, like, making an excuse, but it's just something to think about, that in this day and age, we have so much information, so it's so much easier to be aware about this kind of stuff. Oh, sure. Uh, and I mean, also, even even in this day and age, with that greater degree of information, it's not really like we've achieved a kind of uh, perfect realm of intersectionality, like even within just kind of the specific bubble of the left, right? Like that is if you're on Twitter and you follow leftists on Twitter, you're on leftist Twitter, whatever that means, you will see that this is kind of perpetually a point of of discussion i guess to to kind of characterize it very nicely um so even now that we do have 
easy access with the internet to a ton of information on kind of all the different facets of American imperialism, uh, we still have not achieved this. And also, I do, I do want to add just real quickly that this, this conversation even that we're having now, talking about this film and its kind of ignorance over, over American imperialism as it pertains to Latin America, uh, this also ignores Afro-Latinos who I, I think inhabit a specific kind of cultural or identity space that is so frequently ignored and forgotten. So I just, I kind of want to put that out there, that that is a further factor that this film does not consider. Um, something that critics of Michaud have said a lot is that his films are heavy-handed in terms of social messaging and that maybe because of this or maybe just his own approach that he's not very artistic in his way of making film and i just wondered whether what you thought of that and do you think that the amount of social messaging in this movie hurts the artistic impact uh i don't I, w- I would say it's fair to say that he is very, very heavy-handed with his political messaging, right? This film is not subtle. It does not really try to be subtle. It's, you know, it has a purpose. It has messages it is trying to communicate and does so very bluntly. I think this kind of leads us to a question more broadly about film and art. There are a lot of people who think that that kind of the more directly political something it is something is, the more it ages. We talked about it a little bit when we were discussing allegory, this idea that there there are kind of limitations to something that has a singular like one-to-one significance. But I don't I don't know that it really lessens the impact here. I'm not sure if that's just because of how prescient this continues to be. Again, to situate it in the current political moment, there are currently lynchings uh, going on throughout the United States, multiple cases of black people being found uh, hanging from from nooses from, uh, I believe, lampposts. And the local local police departments uh, keep reporting them as suicides, which I, I think is pretty patently absurd. I don't know that my opinion on this matter, it, it might just be colored by the fact that because we've made so little forward progress on racism and hate in this country, this film is kind of sadly evergreen. But I, I, don't, I don't really view it as being not artistic. What do you think? How, how do you feel about that? Well, okay. So I think it's true, like, like you said, that his messaging is very heavy-handed. But that's also, that can also just be a stylistic choice. There's nothing that says you have to be subtle to make a good movie. I also think that he really, really put a lot in here. Like I said, there were a million plot lines, a million archetypes. He was really trying to communicate a lot. And I like just being honest, um, and it could also have something to do with the chopped up version of the film that we have in terms of being able to understand the movie. It did like kind of confuse me in in that way but i think you know especially as as you said as you get past the kind of earlier part of the movie and things become clearer the emotional thrust is um incredible and i also think that a lot of the stuff that people might think of as quote unquote unartistic are things that are really common to silent films. If you see if if you see more than one of them, you'll see that things like the kind of very emotive acting are just characteristic of the medium and something like you said that you kind of have to do to make sure that your message is communicated in a movie where there is no there's no sound. Just to to kind of piggyback off of your your previous point that I I really liked the idea that no one said that a film has to be subtle to be good. I think there are a lot of filmmakers for whom this would apply. Uh, I think John Sayles is 
a pretty unsubtle director, but also a uh, writer-director, but he is also like one of the, to my mind, one of the greatest American writer-directors, one of the greatest American filmmakers. Same thing for, for Spike Lee. I actually um, coincidentally recently watched Malcolm X, which he made in, in 1992, I believe, and that is not that is not a subtle film. Same thing with Do the Right Thing, but these are these are all films that you can watch now and appreciate and in some ways have a greater resonance. I think even, I don't know to what degree you could say kind of any of their works are no longer relevant, but even if you were to to kind of view them in a, I don't know, a utopian society where these problems are not problems anymore, the way in which they wear their emotions on their sleeves makes them affecting. Well, our theme um, for starting with this movie is censorship. And as you might guess, uh, this film had some problems getting getting shown because of the subject matter. So uh, according to, um, I believe, a newspaper that came out at the time, it took two months for Within Our Gates to get past the censor boards. And, and we talked about this, too, before with silent films at the time. Um, a lot of theaters could kind of chop up movies in whatever they, way they saw fit to appeal to whoever their audience was. Um, and that's in a case with a relatively uncontroversial film. So certainly with a controversial film, that's going to happen. In the case of Within Our Gates, there were cities in the United States that blocked screenings at all, or they cut out scenes of, uh, for example, the, the, the scene with the lynching and the rape. Um, and I also heard that um, for showings in the South, the scenes where whites were portrayed as being subservient were cut. So there's a scene where there's like a message deliverer who brings a telegram that um, Sylvia's cousin Alma collects at the entrance. And the, the message carrier is a white guy. So that's like a white man portrayed in kind of a, a cert, I guess, a, a service job, basically. And they thought that would offend white people in the South. And also, given that the copy of the movie that we have is from Spain, we're not, we know that it's missing some scenes, but we're not entirely clear on what all is missing and what might have been censored even for the Spanish audience. There, there are stills that exist of scenes which are not in the copy that we have. I also wanted to mention something about self-censorship. In the movie, we see that Sylvia is almost raped by a white man who turns out to be her biological father. And in the movie, it's explained that this man was married to, to, to a black woman and then Sylvia was their daughter, which is kind of absurd on its face because we know that like a white man and a black woman were not getting married, certainly not in the South at that time. But it's like the, the actual scenario, right, would have been that a white man raped a black woman and a child was born. But but given the, you know, kind of conservative attitudes of the time, Michaud himself must have felt that he couldn't portray somebody being born out of wedlock and make her the protagonist of the movie. That's why there's that kind of, I guess, clumsy explanation for how um, she came to be. David, I wanted to ask you, do you think you could explain maybe what the overall situation was as far as censorship when it came to American film at, at when this came out? So this this came out in 1920. So I can give kind of a, a brief overview. Again, I am not an expert in these things. Uh, so please contact us if you have more kind of specific information or any uh, corrections you want to make. So my understanding of it, essentially is that as film kind of grew as an art form and grew in prevalence, there was kind of a growing number of people who were concerned about the, the supposed absence of morality within motion pictures. I can't, I can't really speak exactly to why this phenomenon began happening, but I, I, my suspicion is that this is kind of something we see with all art forms, uh, or rather all recent art forms, which kind of uh, may start off as as appearing to be kind of kitschy, 
uh, sideshow type things. And then once people start consuming them, people who are not super familiar, not accustomed to them, grow uncomfortable and begin claiming that there is something uh, uh, morally repugnant about them. So this sensation was growing. And in 1907, uh, Chicago began its uh, uh, board of censors uh, which was kind of the beginning of its official censorship practice. And I believe this was also the first major city within the United States to adopt something like this. And in Chicago, they allowed the police department to kind of view films and clear them for exhibition. After Chicago did this, other cities and states around the United States uh, started enacting kind of their own boards um, so Ohio, I know a couple of years later and, uh, Maryland and, um, New York, I think as well. Anyway, so this was a, kind of a snowballing thing that was happening. And eventually we get to 1922 when the motion picture production code or the Hayes code is introduced, which was kind of officially the sensorial board for the, the entirety of the United States. Uh, I did also want to mention that kind of the background for this. So eventually the Hayes Code died off um, because people quit following it. And finally, there was a Supreme Court ruling against it. Uh, but before the Hayes Code was introduced in 1915, there was a Supreme Court case, Mutual Film Corporation versus Industrial Commission of Ohio. And in that case, the Supreme Court determined that that films were commerce and were not considered art, so they were not protected by the First Amendment. That, again, paved the way for further kind of uh, uh, provincial censorship and eventually a nationwide uh, practice of censorship. Oh, also uh, to note, the Supreme Court decision overturning that was uh, Joseph Burston Incorporated versus Wilson in 1952. Do you happen to know when they began screening the movies for the police in Chicago? Uh, let's see. So I believe that that was just with the beginning of the, the formation of that board. So 1907. Oh, okay. Because um, apparently this movie was shown in full in Chicago without any censorship. But of course, we don't really know what that looked like because we don't have that copy. Right. We've talked about this before. It's notoriously hard to pin down exactly why censorship boards censor what they do. You know, show me a censorship board that has consistent rulings and I'll show you a liar. The last thing that I wanted to talk about is that when this movie came out, it was five years after D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, which was a film that was very significant for filmmaking and also super, super, super racist, um, even from the point of view of white people at the time, right? As far as I understand. Uh, right, that's correct. That's, okay. That's how racist it was. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so a lot of people interpreted Within Our Gates as being a response to birth of a nation. Uh, Oscar Michaud himself said that that wasn't a case. But I wonder, David, I, I haven't seen Birth of a Nation, but you have. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how and why this movie might be viewed that way. So first off, it's been many, many years since I saw Birth of a Nation. Uh, so my memory of it is very fleeting. What I do remember is that there were sequences of kind of the the lecherous the lecherous black man who is attempting to rape a white woman and in one sequence in particular again correct me if i'm wrong but as i remember it that's happening and the kkk comes in and saves her you know fully uh in their their white robes and whatnot it is hard without showing a clip to emphasize how pro-clan that film is they really are the the absolute heroes of that picture again because it's been a while since i've seen it i don't know that i can do like a shot by shot comparison or something dealing with the uh within our gates as being a response to that but i think when we talked about 
the scene in which Sylvia's father is is trying to rape her and that the the politics there, right? The idea that, oh, like you said before, uh, white people had kind of concocted this idea that black men were always raping white women when, in fact, so frequently the reverse was true. Uh, and so this that may have been kind of part of the response. The idea that it's like, oh well, we're showing we're showing the uh, far more frequent version of that crime, right? The the kind of the the truth the truth as it actually is, as opposed to the truth as is used by white people in the Klan to justify lynchings. Well, I think I think that kind of brings us to the end. Do you have any final thoughts before we sign off today? Uh, gosh, well, this is this is kind of a big discussion, and I don't know how much you want to get into it specifically for this episode. But a couple of the big takeaways I had watching this, first off, is I had I had mentioned before uh, how incredibly relevant this film is in America right now, uh, which I think is is exceptionally frightening. And another thing I wanted to talk about a little bit is that we uh, we had mentioned it before, but kind of the, the term race films and how that was used to describe films that were made by and for black Americans outside of the, the Hollywood studio system in which we would see stories like this, right? Because we, if you had heard, um, if you've heard our episode on an affair to remember we mentioned how there are two i believe two children of color who show up in that film only to kind of be belittled and used for entertainment and thrown away that is kind of the epitome of how hollywood treated people of of color right they were non-existent unless they appeared again to be belittled. And here I think it's really remarkable because again, this is the, the first race film I've seen. So this is the first time I, I believe this is the first time I've seen a black person in a silent film uh, because all the other silent films, if there is a black character, they are uh, white people on blackface, uh, which is, is a unique horror all its own. Just to to bring this in a little bit to the modern day, we're having a lot of discussions more recently, again, after the murder of George Floyd and sustained protests uh, across the country from Black Lives Matter protesters. We're having a lot of conversations about uh, white actors portraying uh, people of color on animated television shows, as well as television shows that featured blackface in certain episodes being being pulled down. Uh, so this is not a not a novel thought by any means, but it would seem that a lot of that that kind of mea culpa is essentially corporate corporations Corporate, say, corporate butt covering. Wait, that corporate, weird. <laughs> corporate butt covering. Yes, you know what I mean, right? Um, it's and that's not to say that like, oh, I think it's totally fine that there were episodes of Scrubs with blackface, or I think it's totally fine that white actors are playing people of color. No, those are those are very upsetting things. Uh, but it's very interesting how we're having this discussion because, first of all. Uh, removing those episodes of those shows creates this odd situation in which someone can come in perhaps a year from now, not, you know, kind of not fresh with this knowledge, watch the entirety of Scrubs and never know that that was a show that used blackface and have an inappropriately uh, high opinion of it, perhaps. Um, even if that opinion is just literally they didn't use blackface, which is, you know, again, we're setting the bar real low here. But another element of of this and and more specifically to the idea the the white all these white actors saying they no longer want to voice uh people of color in these shows there has not really been a big demand for people of color in creative roles a couple of years back we had the oscar so white um hashtag that was trending for a little while that was trying to push the academy into no longer almost exclusively nominating uh white male directors as best director but again the industry is not willing to have these conversations about the the 
incredibly limited spectrum of of voices within the industry, right? And I I think it really this is really an incredibly important point because we can watch this film from 1920 and even today, this is a perspective that we almost never get. These issues are hardly ever spoken about in mainstream film and even more rarely are they spoken about from the affected parties, right? Uh, We still have an incredibly small number of people of color who get into these creative uh creative roles again with within industry within the studio system. And so I don't know. I think that was that was really perhaps my biggest takeaway is it's just uh, so profoundly depressing that we've still uh, we've still been shoveling kind of the same stories in our faces for so long and again like Oscar Michaud working in 1920 and how many I mean how many film buffs are not familiar with his name I know I wasn't familiar with his name until gosh maybe a year ago or something and I you know I considered myself up on film history and everything I didn't know who he was all right Well, I would like to thank my sources today. We have The Cinephiliac, um, also Canopy.com. By the way, if you have a membership at your local library, you may be able to access Canopy and watch a lot of movies for free. Um, And Within Our Gates may be on there, depending on your library, and there's some extra information about the film in there. Um, Also, thank you to the Michaud Mission podcast, which uh, they talk about black film throughout history, including several Michaud films, obviously. Um, And also thank you to Wikipedia. So if you would like to follow us, we are on Instagram and Facebook at Maybe Today Matinee. We're on Twitter at Mayday Matinee. Uh, you can email us at maybe today matinee at gmail.com. Um, and if you search maybe today matinee on Patreon, you can also give us some money. Check in next week for our next film in our censorship theme uh, 1955's The Man with the Golden Arm. I'm Monica. I'm David. And this is Maybe Today Matinee. <laughs>